Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 72 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by Legacy Specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. So following on from GCP 71, where we had uh, an excellent exit interview with David Provost, this week we'll be hearing from another outgoing captive regulator in the United States. Steve Kenyon has been regulating captives in the state of Delaware since 2009 and has been a vocal advocate for our industry throughout his tenure. Steve will not be retiring, but going into private legal practice with a focus on captive insurance. And I had the pleasure to sit down with him for an extensive interview about his time in Delaware, the latest developments concerning side A, DNO and captives and the future. Later in the episode, we will hear from regulators in Vermont and South Carolina regarding their own position on captives writing side A, while there is also an interview with Ian Davis, formerly of the state of Vermont and now senior captive insurance relationship manager at M&T Bank. But to start, Steve Kenyon, welcome back onto the Global Captive Podcast. Thank you very much, Richard. As a longtime listener, it's a delight to actually be on the set here as a speaker. Yeah, well, I think the last time we did it in person was probably 2019 at the Seeker conference and the first time I was actually ever recording the GCP because you were on maybe episode four or five, I think. Yes, yeah, I think so. It's somewhat honorary to be in the first 10 GCPs. <laughs> so, uh, Steve, it was announced at the start of August that you will be departing Delaware's Bureau of Captive and Financial Insurance Products after more than 13 years in the role. Why the change of direction for you now? Well, it's a really simple question and a very simple answer to that question. My position is a contractual position, or maybe I shouldn't say my position, I should say the Delaware captive director position is a contractual position, it is not a state employee position, and it is subject to public bidding every four years. Okay. And as a result, uh, this is this was my fourth public bid, and so I did submit a bid, and I just wasn't the wasn't the uh, the selected bidder, and that's based upon a number of factors. Uh, some are objective, unrelated to captive insurance, and of course, some are related to captive insurance. And is, is Delaware unique in that regard? The way that they have um, a contracted captive regulator, it's kind of outsourced in that way, or is that, are other states that do it have a similar um, model? Do you think? I think Delaware is unique in that regard, and Delaware relies heavily on contractual services. I mean, all of its examinations are done by contract. The actuarial work is contractual. Again. Those services are also subject to periodic requests for, for proposals or public bids. So you came, uh, I remember this quite fondly actually, because you came close to leaving the department in 2017 as well, before then extending your stay and then staying on, staying on until now. And I remember, the reason I remember it fondly is not because you, you were leaving, but because I remember frantically writing up the story, because I think it was announced uh, via press release. I was sat in the, the Kuala Lumpur departure lounge and I very almost missed my flight because I was they were shouting at me to board the plane. I was trying to send out a, a breaking news uh, newsletter but you did stay on. I'm not sure it was by the time I landed that uh, <laughs> an agreement had been made, but it wasn't long after. And you did another five years, of course, after that to bring you to today. So I presume you were, you were pleased that you, you did continue for, for those extra five years? Yes. Uh, in 20, 2017, uh, Commissioner Trinidad Navarro assumed office after being elected in 2016. Commissioner and I have had some very good discussions. He was very clear at the time that he preferred someone from Delaware, a Delawarean, filling the role of captive insurance director. I believe he still feels that way. I mean, it's only fair in, in public bidding, there's a natural and sometimes a legal preference 
to select people from your own state, right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, if there was a captive director of the United Kingdom, yeah. you wouldn't pick someone from the Netherlands to do it. Well, we did, we did have a Canadian uh, director of the Central Bank for a while. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are exceptions to the rule. But, yeah, Commissioner Navarro has been very fair. Uh, I'm leaving on very good terms. We've had some great discussions. I think we, we're, we're both in agreement that the Delaware Captive Program has been very successful under my uh, directorship, and I leave it in good hands. Yeah, and it's certainly been uh, an eventful time in captive insurance with yourself in Delaware, and you've always been keen to kind of fight the corner of captives more broadly, not just in Delaware, and, and a real promoter of captive utilization uh, where you think appropriate. I think back to many conversations we've had over the years when I was editor of Captive Review, particularly on topics such as federal home loan bank, TRIA, triple uh, X captives, self-procurement taxes, and, and many more topics. What are some of the achievements or, or developments uh, that you're kind of most proud to have been involved in uh, over the last 13 years? I think the most important achievement is developing a, a very solid captive insurance staff at the Delaware Department of Insurance that I would refer to as captive insurance professionals. And what I mean by that, Richard, is Delaware is one, only one of four captive insurance domiciles in the world that is IC trained. I mean, you know, the commissioner wants the best regulators possible the best regulators we can get, and he wants the most highly trained and skillful regulators. And under that direction, we've, we've built that kind of captive staff, and that, that will continue. I mean, I will miss my colleagues, no doubt. I say colleagues, many of them are, are friends. Most of them are friends. And that's one of the bittersweet aspects of leaving Delaware. But again, I am fully committed to making my successor successful. Anything you, you would do differently looking back over the last, uh, any scrapes you would rather have not got into or anything we would have done differently? Uh, how long do we have for this interview? <laughs> uh, if I had to select one or two, you know, looking back at the NEIC issues about six, seven, maybe eight years ago, those were, I think, some very challenging times. Maybe not for all captives, but certainly it, it placed captive insurance in the spotlight and not always in a positive light. What I think which, what could happen in the future, and maybe this would not be so much of a do-over, but a, a future aspect is that you know, a, closer, a closer relationship is developed between the captive insurance industry and the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. And the reason I say that is so much of what the NEIC does touches captives, maybe not directly, but indirectly. Mm. I'll give you an example. You know, fronting arrangements. You know, lots of captives use fronting companies that, that have licensed or written, you know, accepted paper in various states. Well, that fronting company has to take a credit for reinsurance if it cedes to the captive insurance company that reinsurance risk. Well, that is an NEIC issue in the statutory statement of accounting principles. So I think cognizance of the role the NEIC plays is very, very important for the future of the captive insurance industry. Yeah, and I think obviously some, some of the progress that has been made, if you can call it progress, is I guess because so many states now are a welcoming of captives and support the idea of captives and obviously there's more states that want to be captive domiciles than there ever, ever have been before and I think also the relationship between the commercial market and captives has also I think improved over time and continues to improve in general I think there's less skepticism about captives from the commercial market actually you're exactly right as a matter of fact I am contacted almost on a monthly basis by one or two commercial traditional insurance companies seeking to do business for captive insurance companies mostly on the fronting side yeah fronting definitely is the area that i think there's been calling off i, think, I remember particularly on the eb fronting side and there's one eb network left which has still been kind of resistant to working with captives because it, it sees it as a competitor whereas people like maxis generali zurich have realized well if we don't provide the fronting service to captives and we're going to just lose the business altogether and i think even that last network of igp is quite common knowledge 
have now they've got a new ceo and he's fully committed to embracing and getting on board with captives so steve what's in store for you next what will we still see you around Seeker, BCA, Luxembourg, you know, the captive landscape. You're not walking away from captives altogether? No. As a matter of fact, I plan to renew my interest in captives just in a different way. I'm going back to the full-time practice of law with a law firm called Zach Stamp Limited in Springfield, Illinois. It's a, a boutique law firm that handles insurance regulatory matters and will soon be adding, of course, a captive insurance aspect. I have a long background in insurance regulation. It's something I know very, very well. So I do look forward to these new challenges and when working with those relationships I've developed, those people in the captive industry, those professionals, just in a different way, in a new capacity. Okay, well, great to hear, Steve, that you'll be continuing to practice and contribute to the captive industry here in the United States. We'll hear more from Steve in the second half when we discuss developments in Delaware and beyond regarding side A DNO. But now let's hear from Ian Davis, Senior Vice President and Senior Captive Insurance Relationship Manager at M&T Bank, about recent changes at the bank, his journey since last being on the pod three years ago when at the State of Vermont, and his recent role as VCIA Conference Chair. Ian, welcome back onto the Global Captive Podcast. It's been a few years, I think, since you uh, were on the pod and you've joined, uh, or you joined People's United Bank since you were on. Uh, you joined there in May 2020 and there's been some exciting recent changes there, which we'll come on to in a second. But first, tell us a little bit about your role at, at the bank and what you've been doing for the past uh, two and a half years. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Richard. It's great to be back on the pod with you. Um, and it's hard to believe it's been almost two and a half years since um, you know I made this transition from state government into the into the private sector. First, let me start. You know, I really enjoyed my time working you know at the state, representing the state of Vermont as a as a leader in the industry, um, and also of course working alongside you know some of the great people at the Department of Financial Regulation. But at the time that this opportunity was presented to me with People's United, I had been um, in state government for for just over five years and you know, really was excited at the opportunity this was presented to me to build upon kind of the experience that I had had in the captive industry and also to, you know, expand my knowledge um, in, a, in a new industry that is banking. So my role to your question, uh, really, with People's United Bank was to to formalize in a way what was their, their captive practice. Um, People's United Bank has um, had a long history of servicing the captive industry, I think in part um, just being close uh, to the, the captive management community here in Burlington, Vermont. But, you know, in addition to banking, as we know, captives require, you know, a, a whole breadth of uh, financial services, whether it's letters of credit and trusts, um, all the way through to investment management services. So this was really an opportunity to, to build upon that rich history and to stand up and expand upon, you know, the business that is captive insurance. So, uh, as people may know, M&T completed its acquisition of Peoples in April this year. Uh, quite a big change. How is that going to kind of change the proposition that you offer to captives and, and the captive market? Yeah, well, the, the announcement of the acquisition was actually first made in February of 2021. So, uh, as you can imagine, it was a interesting times. That was shortly after my arrival um, at Peoples United uh, and also just a long period from which the, the announcement was made 
to when the uh, Fed granted approval for the acquisition. So all that is to say we're extremely excited about you know what this will mean for the captive practice. I view it as really two complementary financial institutions joining um, together, again, both with rich histories in the industry. I think we've got a very compelling story to tell. Um, you know, historically, as I've, I've noted, you know, People's United really serviced the Vermont marketplace. And now um, M&T Bank, you know, our footprint alone, we encompass six of the top 20 domiciles in the U.S. Uh, and really the mandate we have is to, to, to be the preferred provider, not only to those um, jurisdictions, but to all major domiciles, both domestic and internationally. And of course, it also brings you together with some of our mutual friends at Wilmington Trust, uh, are well known in the captive arena too, again, both domestically and, and internationally. How excited are you about that transition? Uh, very excited. You know, first, let me say, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the news of Robert Quinn's passing. It uh, He was a very well-liked and respected individual, and my condolences go out to, to his friends and family. Now, with that being said, there is uh, a, a really strong team there, including Todd Winchell and Mike Ramsey. Uh, who were Robert's colleagues and will continue to remain with the Insurance Collateral Services Group. So again, in my mind, Wilmington Trust has been such a uh, a strong, well-known, well-regarded name uh, in the industry. It's kind of marrying up that M&T side of things where we can bring a, you know, a holistic approach to servicing the captive uh, industry, not only just on th- from a trust standpoint, but also you know, banking, treasury management, investment management, really bringing with us all of our capabilities and resources to service the industry. Yeah, and I certainly echo your thoughts regarding uh, Robert Quinn. Yeah, really good guy. Had the pleasure to spend a lot of time with him, uh, particularly in London uh, in my previous job at Captive Review and, and, and got many happy memories with him. So as you said, thoughts to his family and friends and to Mike and Todd as well. So I know that they were all extremely close. So Ian, you also chair the uh, VCIA conference this year, a big job to do, arguably the biggest captive conference there is in the world. Uh, we're speaking just before the conference kicks off, so we can't review it as such. Uh, but how have you found the, the process and uh, how excited are you for the week ahead? Well, it, it's been a, a wonderful experience uh, this past year. I mean, the work of the conference task force and, and as, you know, conference chair, a lot of work goes into the preparation for this event. So as we sit here today um, on Monday, kind of on the precipice of, of, of the conference, I am just very excited. We've, we've learned there's over, you know, 920 attendees, 200 of which are first-time attendees, um, as well as 200, close to 250 uh, captive owners. And I think a lot of that really is a testament not only to the growth that we've seen here in Vermont um, over the last three years. Uh, you know, I think if you look back in total, it'll probably be close to 100 licenses that have yeah. been issued in the last year. So a lot of first-time attendees are coming from that. But also, you know, those familiar captive uh, owners that have been uh, and will continue to be just such a rich part of, of Vermont's captive history and and really make a point to, to be here for the conference. So that's, that's really excited. I'm honored to be serving in the chair role. Um, and I have to say, Kevin Mead, uh, VCI president, has done a wonderful job. Um, you know, it's it's a big undertaking, and he's, he's really taken the association by the reins and is doing a great job in his leadership position. You mentioned there 200 first-time attendees. It's also definitely noticeable that we have a, a younger demographic of captive professionals attending conferences such as VCIA. Uh, definitely, uh, that's the case, I think, at SECA in the last couple of years. Um, you've been involved in the uh, next-gen efforts at 
that seeker. We've featured that committee and that initiative a few times on the podcast. Um, have you noticed this change, do you think, in in, uh, in that demographic attending and, and getting involved in captives? And what do you think is driving that change? Yeah, so I've been involved with the Sea Connection initiative since it was first launched back in uh, 2020, um, and I'm now co-chair of the the task force that helps to drive kind of some of our programming. I think, and I have to give a lot of credit to Sika for really taking a leadership role in this way. But it's a recognition that you know our industry is is changing and that um, in order to continue to thrive and be a vibrant um, you know industry we need to bring in and recruit kind of the next generation of captive professionals and so this initiative the, the intention is really to build you know upon the knowledge networks and relationships of those young professionals so that there is a landing place for new new and young professionals when they come uh, into captive insurance and hopefully you know remain there for the you know a long period of time over the course of their careers. When captives are exploring a potential legacy transaction, whether fully offloading a captive or transferring a portfolio of business, is it important for them to know the partner they work with has a full suite of vehicles ready to support their chosen strategy? Yes, that's right, Richard. At R&Q, as a result of completing legacy transactions at the major captive domiciles over the last 13 years, we've built up a compelling portfolio of liability consolidation vehicles. We have companies in Bermuda, Cayman, Guernsey, Isle of Man, Vermont, and for EU business in Malta. This allows us to seamlessly assume legacy liabilities onto our platform without facing endless cross-border transactions. We also have two A-rated carriers, one in the US, admitted across all states, and the other in Malta, with all non-life licenses and freedom of services across the EU and a branch in the UK. This allows us to offer widespread solutions as replacement capacity or as a retrospective front or as a well-rated reinsurer to gain capital efficiency. Thank you, Paul. Well, if you want more information on R&Q, then visit their friend of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website or follow the links in the episode show notes. So, Steve, one of the topics that has dominated the last couple of years of this hard market has been DNO and the debate concerning captives writing any kind of DNO. Does divide opinion amongst amongst captive owners themselves. We've had many captive owners on the podcast, and over the last two years, I often ask them the question about DNO, and some are open to the idea. Some would say no, we, there's no, we'll never put DNO in the captive. And even among consultants as well, and the legal landscape varies around the world regarding self-insuring some DNO risks, and it has been a discussion, particularly around in Delaware because of its of its large corporate population and the Delaware Corporate Code was amended earlier this year to explicitly allow Delaware corporates to ensure side A DNO risks in their captive, uh, generally wherever the captive is domiciled. But you, in your position as the Delaware captive regulator, have the responsibility of regulating the captives themselves in the state. What is what is your position on, on, on Delaware captives being used to ensure side A risks? Well, as you said a moment ago, it could only be for Delaware corporations of which in the United States, my last estimate is about 55% of yeah. all U.S. corporations are Delaware corporations. So it's it's very meaningful for Delaware. Yeah. The public policy now, the state of Delaware, as of earlier this year, it was signed by Governor Carney on February 7th, that captive insurance companies, whether they're domiciled in Delaware or not, yeah. can provide side A directors and officers coverage for Delaware corporations. You know, the, the DNO market has, well, I'll probably bisect it in these terms. There are 
one half has good pricing and the other half probably has not so good pricing or yep. very, very challenging pricing. And I think a, I do believe that a captive could be a very suitable alternative for the commercial market, maybe just directly or in combination maybe with a traditional DNO side A policy. But I do believe it's good policy. It addresses a need, it addresses a hunger that is currently within the DNO market to find an alternative. And that's what Delaware did, the Delaware General Assembly in passing this new law. So what about the captives though? Because obviously the, the corporate code change doesn't impact the captives themselves. It obviously allows the parent to use captives wherever they may be if the local regulator, captive regulator allows them. So what kind of discussions have you been having in the state of Delaware with the local captive? The community about how you view a Delaware domicile captive right inside a DNO risk? Well, as soon as the law was passed, uh, the executive staff, Commissioner Navarro, said we got to develop a plan for this. So we began working with the Delaware Captive Insurance Association, or the DCIA, and the special subcommittee was formed. And we worked out a number of issues. We have a draft bulletin prepared right now internally within the department. I'm making the final touches on that and plan to have that finished before my departure next month. But I believe we've had some very good public policy on this. You know, the discussions with the, with the DCIA were very frank, open, uh, and there were a number of individuals, not just captive managers, but DNO experts from various sections of the insurance in industry who are participants. The final product, I believe, will, will be a good product. It will make these captives solvent. And also, it will address the question that could be addressed in the future. You know, one of the concerns that we have with the Delaware Insurance Department is that because the corporation is forming the captive, is funding the captive, is paying premium to the captive, the argument will be, well, that's just the corporation's money. Yeah. You're indemnifying using the corporation's money and indem direct indemnification by the corporation to the officers and directors, that's prohibited, especially you know, in, in cases when there are shareholder suits, like shareholder lawsuits or derivative suits. So there will be a challenge, I expect, to how these captives are regulated, how these are formed. There will be disgruntled shareholders. I don't know when that will happen, Richard, but this is real risk. This, should, this issue should not be addressed lightly. And, but if it's done right, and I believe Delaware can, will do it right, it can be a great model in terms of how side A DNO coverage can be insured by captive insurers. And you know, that, that issue regarding you know, the captive is formed by the corporation, funded by the corporation, paid premium to and received claims, being part of the corporation is actually an age-old captive discussion and debate anyway. And in other areas, it's just so much with side A DNO particularly, it's particularly sensitive, I think, in, in that regard of, of needing that kind of arm's length or some kind of... I think the law says you need to have kind of independent kind of claims management. Is That's that correct. Right in court, on the, court the, the law specifically says independent claims administrator. Ironically, which is a, which is when, when the bill was being drafted before it went to the Senate committee, I coined that phrase mm. and you know placed it into the into the into the uh, into the bill, and it, that phrase became law. Well, we did also in, in March, I did catch up with a couple of other regulators in South Carolina, Joe McDonald and David Provost and Christine Brown in Vermont to get their view on what their stance would be in uh, South Carolina, respectively, and Vermont, respectively, on captives in their domiciles insuring side A risks. And this is what they had to say. So, Joe, obviously DNO in the headlines a lot for, for various reasons and then this, this new Delaware law. But before we talk about Side A specifically, more broadly in South Carolina, are you aware of any captives already in the jurisdiction which do write some 
element of DNO? Yes, uh, we do have a number of captives that, that currently write DNO coverage, um, not side A, of course, at, at present. And so, yeah, on the side A specifically, as you said, no captives in South Carolina are currently writing side A. That's extremely common. You know, it's been very, very rare that captives have written any kind of side A cover. So we've known the news about uh, the Delaware corporate code changing to expressly allow a Delaware corporate to use a captive, and that could be a captive in theory in any jurisdiction, to uh, cover the, the parent's side A exposures. What's the South Carolina position on this? Is uh, Would you be open to the idea if a Delaware corporate wanted to use a captive in South Carolina to write side A? In a nutshell, yes. We, we, we recognize the need that companies have for this coverage, and we are always open to having discussions on how captives can meet this need. Um, we, we applaud curiosity, creativity, and, and ingenuity uh, in, in all of this. Um, but that said, we, we are certainly cognizant of the, the nuances uh, that are in place that increase the complexities of, of writing side A in a captive. Um, so again, you know, we're not outright barring the discussions and the possibility, uh, but there is, there is really a unique landscape that needs to be navigated here. In Vermont, have you seen many business plan changes uh, or applications from captives looking to write DNO broadly, not just specifically side A? Well, I, I really, um, from an application perspective, I don't think that we've seen an uptick, I would say, in DNO, uh, you know, a captive writing specifically DNO coverage. Sometimes it is included in the plan, but I wouldn't say it's an uptick in comparison to other years, would you agree? Uh, no, and I don't have a handy stat to say how many of our captives do write DNO, but a lot of them do, mm -hmm. um, both the groups and the pures, and, and have forever. And like anything else, they'll go in and out of the market with their captive as the market changes. Uh, when it's affordable, they'll buy it on the market. When it's not, they'll put it in the captive um, and properly fund it. And it's, But I wouldn't say there's been a great trend of more. Yeah. Uh, it's always been there um, yeah. and is, is still there. So obviously, one of the other reasons, Dino, is particularly the last couple of weeks, we're talking at, at Seeker right now, uh, the last couple of weeks, uh, Delaware did change their corporate code. And I think it's really important. I'm going to keep emphasizing this. And every time I ask this question to everyone, it's the corporate code. It's not the captive law that's been amended. And people need to understand that. So what is the Vermont position then on a pure captive providing insurance for side A exposure to its parent? As I said, bearing in mind the Delaware amendments, we know how many Fortune 500 type companies are holding code in Delaware. They're now expressly permitting that they can use a captive in any domicile, in theory, to insure those side A of the parent. What does that mean? then for you've got a captive in vermont say it's owned by a delaware company they now allowed to do it from the delaware side does that change the game for you from side a what's your view dave on on side a and going into captives it, it kind of has to change the view somewhat because i don't know how many of our captives parents are delaware corporations but i can assume it's probably half or more but the you have potential conflicts with the state of domicile's captive law. You have potential conflict with insurance laws. Uh, you have con potential conflicts with where the director resides. Uh, it may be a Vermont captive and a Delaware parent, and the director might live in California. Um, so there's all sorts of things that we haven't fully vetted out for us to come out and actually say we have a position. But I, I think we're going to wind up with, all right, with some guardrails, with some appropriate ways to make sure that it's properly funded, we'll, we will most likely allow it with a Vermont captive in, in, those, in, in the right circumstances. It's going to lead to some questions of how do you fund it. And there's it's still, just because Delaware made it legal, 
it doesn't necessarily address some of the underlying issues with, well, what do you do if the parent's insolvent? Yeah. Um, and you've experienced that before with, with other captives in the sure, past, haven't you? Sure. Uh, you have an insolvent parent, therefore you have to do something with the captive. Your, your captive no longer has a customer. So you have to, to put the captive through the insolvency routines as well. And so if you have some of the questions that have come up have been, does the captive have to be monoline? Can it, if it's going to offer side side egg DNO, is that all it can offer? Because what if you have an insolvency situation? Well, now you've got all these assets that were supposed to pay workers' comp claims, and you want to pay DNO claims as well. Where's the judge going to side? Probably with the worker. Yeah. And the workers' comp. Although on the other hand, you know, you can hand it over to the front. It was fronted. Yep. So were you you were in those conversations as well. So anything yeah. else that you want yeah. to throw in? I you know, that's an interesting, you know, I guess topic about the monoline and, and potentially maybe like a, a separate account would work in a captive um, doing that. So like Dave said, we've been talking about some guardrails potentially that could help us get there and get comfortable. And one of the things um, other than properly funding and making sure the captive can stand on its own so it doesn't have to go then to its bankrupt parent to get money um, is initially I think we talked about just having them demonstrate to us that either there was a need or, or not a need but that there was an inability to get the coverage or it was just too expensive so I think that demonstration up front of we can't get this affordably we wanted to try to see that initially too before we would say yay or nay it almost goes back to the old days of captives where you had to prove you couldn't get coverage right before yeah. you were allowed to put in a captive. Yeah. yeah. So it's fair to say then that even though, as you say, Delaware law now allows the company's headquarters there to, to buy the side A from a captive, it's not going to be treated like any other line for you. It's not just like a captive coming to you and saying, we're going to put workers company. There's going to be other questions. There's going to be other uh, reassurances that you're looking for. Yeah. But it's not a no. No, it's not, it's not a no. Uh, you know, we hate to start with no, because if you start with no, then you're done. We're going to start with yes, um, but... <laughs> right. And so yeah. there, there'll be there'll be other questions to ask. Yeah. Well, my reaction to my friends Joe and Dave, and of course Dave will soon be departing, is that you know, both those domiciles are very very good and very responsible captive insurance domiciles, and, and the two of them are great regulators, as are you know, all the other regulators here in the United States. Uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, of course, and I think every captive insurance company application is looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. What I think I'll be proud of, though, Richard, is once Delaware has issued the bulletin and shown what the road path, what the avenue is to licensing these captives, many states will follow. As I said a moment ago, I coined the phrase independent claims administrator. If there's ever a dispute, you can always blame me for that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, it will be interesting. It will be a fascinating legal landscape to see how it does play out because there's going to be a first mover. There might already be first movers who have already put the side A into their captives. And I think obviously there is some nervousness. It's, it's quite public knowledge that a lot of the momentum for changing that corporate code in Delaware did come from a select group of Delaware corporations who were, were keen to explore this use of their captive because they wanted to fix a broken DNO market, which is, let's be honest, is what it was, or maybe still is, going back two or three years ago. But those corporates are still going to have to take the plunge and, and do it. And it'll be interesting to see how quickly they do take it up. In terms of conversations you've had from captives which are in Delaware, have you started already here to hear about uh, captives who are considering in Delaware adding side A coverage to, the, to their captive? Yes, there's already an application. 
yeah. that's been submitted. How much interest do you think there will be? Obviously, people want to see the bulletin come out, but do you think there'll be a huge uh, monsoon of captives wanting to write side A, do you know? I think it, it could be a steady stream. I mean, I don't, maybe not use the adjective monsoon. Or, <laughs> I don't know where that came from twice. <laughs> Kuala Lumpur, maybe. It's all right. <laughs> what I think will happen, Richard, is that everyone, the industry will, will view this cautiously because it's new. Yeah. And as some have said to me in the industry, no board of directors wants to be the test case. Yeah. Correct? So I understand that. But with good responsible regulation and guidance, they don't have to be the test case. And you know, in my new capacity, once I leave Delaware, uh, if, if I can you know, promote myself for a moment, I, I'd be ready and available to help consult on these matters. Because if there's anything that I, I believe I can f- honestly say and with some confidence, there's probably not a, an insurance regulator in the United States, maybe even the world, who has more knowledge about side A, DNO coverage, and captives than me. Well, yeah, so do you think that might, that might be an area of focus for you, your new practice? You'd certainly be open to working on, on those kind of uh, programs? Without a doubt. And, and it doesn't have to be Delaware. It can be in any jurisdiction. Well, Steve, uh, thank you very much for coming back onto the Global Captive Podcast again. And uh, good luck in the, in the next venture. Look, I'm ready for my third GCP at some point, so (laughs) we'll catch up then. Fantastic. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.